Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. So today, take a listen, because you probably know this song. We're taking a look at a piece of music that you probably are familiar with. La Campanella, or more specifically, Movement 3 of Grande Etude de Paganini. And this is all by Franz Liszt, just to be clear as well. It's not by Paganini, <laughs> no, as the name not. might imply. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into that. Yes, um, we will. The inspiration for this episode is actually a very rare crossover for the coffee house, um, which, you know, obviously we are a classical music podcast, but this is actually inspired by pop music. So if you watch the rating charts at all, you may have seen that there was a recent new release from the girl group Blackpink and their song Shutdown, which has topped the charts uh, for several weeks now, uses a sample of La Campanella that is played by a violin. So with this buzz around this melody in the pop world, you know, people listening to the song being like, oh, what's this? And then looking it up. The classical music world obviously sees an influx of those internet searches and song downloads and overall interest in the genre, perhaps. So really, we are reaping the benefits of the pop culture scene here. Yes, we are. Now, obviously, this week we are not listening to a violin solo. You can hear in the background, it's obviously a piano solo. And why is that? Well, Allison, I'm so glad you asked because that's a great question. <laughs> the violin version actually came first. So the melodic line we hear right now actually came from the third movement of the second violin concerto by Niccolo Paganini. That's where the name comes from. This movement is nicknamed La Campanella, meaning the little bell. Not really because of the melody, but rather because of a small handbell played by the percussion section throughout the entire movement, ironically, naming your violin concerto after a percussion instrument, the smallest of the percussion <laughs> instruments that plays during your performance. It's a little Now, granted, little it's there. not the whole concerto, just this movement is named La Campanella. Still, just doing <laughs> naming it after one small portion of one movement <laughs> hey, of the instrument okay. that you're not playing. If you go and listen to the thing, the bell plays throughout, literally the whole time. So it's fair. The bell might play slightly more than the violin does. I guess so. And I guess to be fair, uh, the melody does often mimic the bell-like quality because it does have staccato notes and that combined with the high timbre of the violin could potentially make you think of a bell. Potentially, if we're yeah. feeling imaginative. <laughs> so that name then, Paganini, we haven't done a bio episode on him. Not yet. Maybe we next time. Maybe, but we have mentioned him several times in passing, so really quick summary here. Paganini was a master at the violin, 
and he was surprisingly mostly self-taught. Apparently, when he was seeking further instruction, he was told by his instructors that there was nothing left that they could teach him. Wow. That's the dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it a dream? Well, I don't know if it really is that much of a dream, um, because part of his extreme techniques on the violin actually came to him through a somewhat unfortunate cause. He apparently suffered from Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So sorry if I said that wrong. But this is a disease of connective tissue that makes joints hyperflexible, which sounds cool, but you know, not having strong connective tissue can really predispose you to some right. gnarly things. So it's not great. A lot great. of other stuff. <laughs> yeah. So he got this hyperflexibility and he could achieve some amazing feats on the frets that were beyond compare. Please note, we know that violins do not actually have frets. The alliteration just sounded really nice. <laughs> Um, now, in his day, this medical condition was generally ignored by the public. A lot of people probably didn't even know about it, know that he had it. Um, but they just kind of thought there was maybe a, a different explanation, more devilish explanation, if you will, for his <laughs> skills. Um, it was reported that he had made a Faustian bargain with the devil to achieve his dreams of being the best violinist in the world. So we'll let you decide what is the more likely story. Or maybe they're both likely. Maybe I the, think so. Yeah, you know, maybe the bargain was you get the skills, but you also got the disease. The monkey's you know, paw it's a curls. Blessing in a curse. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless of his dances with heretical beings, Paganini was a very well regarded performer and composer, and he made much of his living not just as a composer, but rather as a touring performer. Most of the works we have now were simply written for himself to show off his amazing technique to the audiences. So as a result, La Campanella, as the final movement of the concerto, is decidedly a showpiece, and is often actually played as a standalone work without the rest of the concerto. Now, how does all of this relate to Liszt? Asa coming in with the best, choicest questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm so glad you asked, Asa. In 1832, a young Franz Liszt heard the great Paganini in concert. And this was right at the beginning of Liszt's own rock star career. And really, you can think about it in many ways. Paganini might have paved the way for Liszt to really become the touring rock star that he was. For more information on this, go back and listen to our Liszt episode. It was go quite back a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> but Liszt was so taken by the simple melody that evolved into so many variations and emotions that he just had to make it his own. But this wasn't the only piece of Paganini that Liszt liked. As we mentioned, this is actually the third movement of a larger collection of piano etudes that are based on a lot of different Paganini works. So the version that we are listening to today is actually the third iteration of this concept. The first version Liszt wrote in 1834, titled Grande Fantasy de Bravura sur la Cloche de Paganini. <gasps> <laughs> this piece is notoriously not very pronounceable or playable on the piano. Not so much that pianists can't play the notes, but rather just the way the piano actually works. 
the requested dynamics and speed is just not possible. So the second version of our La Campanella concept was in 1838, called <clears throat> Grande Etude d'Execution Transcendante d'Après le Caprice de, Cam de Perganini. All right. Uh, really being described as being inspired by Paganini, but overall transcending his original creation, and it still wasn't quite the masterpiece that we hear today. How would my pronunciation go? You know, great job. Excellent. <laughs> the deep breaths helped. Yeah, definitely. You had to center yourself to get those. So the final version that we now know and love and are listening to today come from the Etude Collection that was published in 1851, so quite a while after Liszt's first experience with the source material. Since Liszt, like Paganini, did write a lot for himself just to play well on tour, not really intending it to be published for general audience consumption, this final version likely received many modifications while on the road before it really reached this final and perfected published form. And while this piece is very showy and overall pretty pleasant to experience for a listener, it is widely regarded as one of the most difficult pieces in the solo piano repertoire. So let's get into these technicalities. To begin, the key is G-sharp minor, the relative of B major, thus it has five sharps in the key signature, which is no fun. <laughs> However, it begins innocuously enough with alternating octave chords in the bass and treble, on F-sharp, the 7th, and D-sharp, the 5th. And right after that unassuming intro, we jump into the challenge. So there are 16th notes that jump up to a high D-sharp but the melody is steadily marching downward. So eventually, the pianist actually ends up jumping two octaves on these 16th notes. Now, luckily in the bass, there's not much happening, just octave chords on the large beats of the measure. Now the next phrase is almost exactly the same, but grace notes are added, thus ramping up the difficulty. You have to add an additional quick finger movement before leaping up to that high D-sharp. The next section gives us some more development. It's in a major sound, but it also features chromatic downward moving chords. are interesting as they're a case of the music looking a lot harder than it actually is to play. We see double sharps and it looks like the chords alternate between seconds and thirds. However, what's really going on is all the chords are thirds the whole way down, but due to the decidedly stupid key signature and the aforementioned double sharps, the intervals look a lot more tricky than if this were just written in like G minor. You know, a nice key. <laughs> a nice, polite key. Yeah, not this ridiculous five-sharp minor key. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now keep in mind as we go all throughout this piece, the 16th note motif of jumping up to a higher, usually non-moving, note remains throughout. This is our callback to the original handbell that was heard in the version for violin. With this being a bit of a theme and variations, we can of course expect the melody to be experimented with just a bit. In this next variation, rather than just duple 16th notes with one melody note to one high bell tone, this section has triplet notes, combining two repeated melody notes to only one bell tone. And can you imagine that these notes get even faster? And now, instead of just 16th notes, we actually have 32nd notes, which is kind of the next fastest thing up from 16th. And though the tempo isn't awful, once we get splitting up the beats into these small of divisions, it really feels quite quick. And playing these repetitive notes this quickly is difficult to do evenly. So take a listen here. The bass has actually taken over the melody, while the treble has to still hammer away at these super fast notes. The trick here is that it is quite difficult to play these fast notes so fast and so quiet just due to the way the pianos actually work. So if you recall our recent episode on player pianos, the piano mechanism is actually a key hitting a lever contraption, which in turn moves a hammer that strikes a string. Multiple moving parts, and moving this whole thing and letting the key come up just enough that the hammer will be able to strike again with enough force requires extreme finesse. It's much easier, therefore, to play these fast notes loud, as there's less fine control required, but a true master pianist will be able to control such quiet fast notes and let the bass melody shine through. And here's another challenge that comes along with busy notes in the treble and sparse notes in the bass. Though the treble is busy running around, it's not the actual interesting part of the music. The chords in the bass are what needs to be phrased, but that tempo might get in the way. So with such a sparse melody, the pianist really has to be cognizant of where the phrase is going, and not just randomly play the chords while focusing on those tough 30 second notes. It's, it's incredible really because it combines really tough technical aspects with extremely difficult musical aspects and the performer really has to focus on both yes definitely i mean ex exercise in multitasking indeed <laughs> so here's another fun little part that might sound like another famous piece Buzz, buzz. Flight of the bumblebee, anybody? <laughs> <laughs> so let's get right into another iteration of the theme. 
We start with a trill on the high D sharp, which then transitions into written 30 second notes of D sharp to E. Basically, it's just a written trill to help with counting. This trill is played by the pinky and ring finger of the right hand, and then as the melody in the bass comes in, the thumb of the right hand plays a lower repeated D sharp in the staff. So just try for yourself moving the ring finger and your pinky finger four times as fast as your thumb. Uh, I'm trying to do it right now, and I can't do it with any sort of uh, coordination. <laughs> me neither. It's kind of making me wonder if it's not kind of cheated almost, where maybe the left hand ends up playing those more inner notes that the thumb would be playing. It's kind of hard to tell how it's written in the score, because there are definitely, like, you could have written that middle, like, melody note in right. bass clef, but it would have just had a lot of ledger lines. But it would have mm -hmm. been possible. But no, they chose to write it specifically in the treble clef, which makes me feel yeah. like it was meant to be played by the right hand. So I don't know how pianists really achieve it. If you are a pianist and you have played this piece, um, do reach out to us and tell us. Uh, tell us how it's done. That's coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. So the next iteration moves the melody completely to the bass but the treble still has a challenge. There is this little motif that goes high D sharp, high E, high D sharp. Big leap down an octave to a D sharp, an octave lower, and then the pattern repeats in that octave before jumping back to the high octave. So it's probably a little easier than the rapid repeated notes, but still quite the challenge with the rapid large leaps that bounce back and forth. Never really get a break here in the the right hand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now we get to really get ready for the fireworks. We finally reach a piumoso section, and so the tempo and challenge really starts to ramp up. Both the treble and bass again have big leaps, with the inner and outer fingers of each hand actually playing different things. So again, kind of melody on the inside and little twiddles on the outside. <laughs> this section is a bit reminiscent of a lot of Liszt's perhaps more famous piano works, the Hungarian Rhapsodies. Now we, we get back to the title of this piece, or or at least where it came from. Remember, this is an etude, which is supposed to be a training piece. And a good reason for this piece to be called an etude, despite its extreme challenge and prevalence as a performance piece, actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. etudes usually aren't performed. Um, this one is. It's, it's still an incredible training exercise because of the strength training required in the weaker fingers, like your outer fingers, your ring finger, your pinky, to exert all the control needed throughout this piece. It, it's really quite something. Mm -hmm. I can imagine after playing a piece like this, you know, anything else that would require those fingers to trill on something would be a cakewalk, because you'll have practiced it already. Oh, yes. Yes. So, hashtag growth. 
<laughs> so now then, on to the, one of the most grand iterations of the melody. We have repeated octave chords, finally repeated at the forte dynamic to really show off the power of the piano. Listen to this dramatic chromatic run with contrary motion between the treble and bass. While the treble moves up, the bass moves down. And for our grand finale, Liszt introduces a different theme that is complementary to La Campanella. the final callback to La Campanella's repeated notes with the pianist hammering away with an octave D-sharp, G-sharp, D-sharp in the treble, and actually jumping octaves with these same notes in the bass, before finally ending on a fully voiced tonic G-sharp minor chord. <laughs> in that piece holy cow um the people who perform this uh just something else um it's it's quite a piece to hear performed and i imagine it was exceptional to watch list perform it in person mm -hmm. now a, a lot of people wonder you know did list have exceptionally long hands were these octaves easier for him and to an extent he might have he's reported to have had kind of very long thin fingers but i mean if you're still talking about two octaves, there's no way his hands were two octaves right. big. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was still a challenge, but he was up to mm -hmm. it. He was a fine performer, if ever there was one. <laughs> and, oh yeah, he certainly was. Um, something that we, a question that we might investigate in a future episode, stay tuned, we've been thinking a little bit, have performers gotten better since the time of list is it do they have an easier time with these kinds of pieces because for whatever reason you know maybe practice techniques are better maybe just equipment and education is better or maybe truly there was just no one as good as list ever was yeah maybe there's just more people playing hard things than there was before yeah so that's a topic that we'd like to ex that we'd like to investigate. If you have something to add to that, do reach out to us again, coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com, because um, we are enthusiasts but not historians. So um, <laughs> we are learning, a, though. <laughs> exactly, we're learning a lot every day, and I hope you have as well. And if, if you, you have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you want me to say this part now? Go for it. Oh, it's your goodness. turn. It's not my turn for this. It is now. Oh, gosh. You so, started. Ah. You started, now you must finish. Oh, no. It is a, a fate worse than death. <laughs> so. And if you have not suffered a fate worse than death by listening to this <laughs> podcast, and they potentially have learned something, please do share us. Share it. <laughs> the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, A Fate Better Than Death. <laughs> That's the new tagline for sure. There it is. Oh my goodness. Well, anyway, please share us with friends, colleagues, 
family members. Leave reviews, five stars on Spotify, all that good stuff. Maybe it's for the history, maybe it's for the music, maybe it's for whatever this is at the end of some of these episodes. Either way, thank some you so much. Some of these are unhinged. They are. <laughs> this is episode 159. It's been a long time. Um, We're getting into our goofy era. This is. This is the, this is the goofy era. Kind of like, you know, Beethoven's Blue Period, but... What? Coffee house. I don't know. I'm mixing up things. It's late. I'm mixing up references. I feel like that was a different art. It might have been Picasso. God, I can't even. Yeah, remember. Beethoven had like a middle period and a late period. That's what I meant. Somebody had a blue period. I can't remember now. Listener, if you know who had a blue period, please tell us. Subject line: Asa needs to go to sleep. And or the Beatles, they had the white album. That's kind of like the blue period. For the Coffee House <laughs> Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. La Campanella was performed by Ramald Grease. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.